Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Easy Conversations podcast, a podcast about having easy conversations, where we talk about mental health, adversity, spirituality, and societal issues. I'm your host, Furkan Dandia. And in this enlightening episode of Easy Conversations, we delve into the captivating world of nurturing emotional regulation and fostering attunement in children, guided by the expertise of neuroscientist, Dr. Cindy Huffington. Join us as we embark on a journey to understand the profound impact of emotional regulation on a child's development and how attunement lays the foundations for healthy emotional growth. Dr. Huffington draws upon her years of research to provide listeners with invaluable insights into the intricate dynamics of children's emotional well-being. As an acclaimed practitioner, Dr. Huffington's passion for helping children thrive shines through as she shares practical strategies for parents, caregivers, and educators. During this episode, Dr. Huffington explains the significance of emotional regulation in children's lives and its far-reaching effects on their cognitive, social, and emotional development. She delves into the challenges children often encounter in understanding and managing their emotions, offering guidance on how adults can become supportive allies in this essential journey. The conversation then shifts towards attunement, a fundamental aspect of healthy parent-child relationships. Dr. Huffington eloquently elucidates how attunement involves empathetic listening, understanding nonverbal cues, and responding in ways that validate a child's emotions. Through relatable anecdotes and evidence-based insights, she paints a vivid picture of how attunement forms the bedrock of secure attachments, enabling children to build resilience and navigate the complexities of their emotions. Listeners will also have the privilege of gaining access to practical tips and techniques that can be seamlessly integrated into everyday life. Dr. Huffington's warm and approachable demeanor makes complex psychological concepts accessible to all as she provides step-by-step guidance on fostering emotional intelligence, active listening, and emotional expression in children. Whether you're a parent guardian, educator, or anyone interested in a child's emotional growth, this episode offers a treasure trove of wisdom. Dr. Huffington's wealth of knowledge is a guiding light, helping us navigate the intricate realm of emotional regulation and attunement in children. Dr. Huffington is the founder and director of Curious Neuron, host of the Curious Neuron podcast, and co-founder of Wondergrade. She left academia to raise her three children and founded Curious Neuron to offer parents a reliable and science-backed resource that all parents can access. Curious Neuron has grown into an international community of over 160,000 parents learning from their content. Her content focuses on child's emotional health and the parents as well. She believes They can help foster positive emotional development in children by prioritizing parents' emotional health and well-being. After becoming a mom, she thought she had everything under control until she struggled with her mental health. She knows how difficult it can be to support one's child when struggling. She wants Curious Neuron to be every parent's go-to resource for a safe, supportive, and informative community. During the summer of 2022, she also co-founded Wondergrade, an app that teaches children ages 3 to 8 
emotional coping skills, which can be tried out for free. You can find Dr. Hubbington's work online at www.curiousneuron.com. Her Instagram page is at curious underscore neuron and her podcast Curious Neuron is available on all platforms. And if you could leave a five-star review or a comment after the episode, I would truly appreciate it. All right, Dr. Hovington, welcome to the Easy Conversations podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I'm super, super grateful for you to take the time. And I'm really excited for our conversation. It's something I've been researching a lot as part of my journey in terms of becoming a therapist and as a parent as well. I think it's really important. But before we start our conversation, I do want to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself to the listeners and let us know a little bit about who you are and what it is that you do. Thank you Thank for you having, having me on your podcast. podcast. I think um, any opportunity to speak about the science of parenting and our emotions and really is, is helpful and, and is what I'm trying to do really with my work. Um, so I have a PhD in neuroscience from McGill University, and I studied psychosis and schizophrenia in youth and, and specifically emotional outcomes of that and cognitive outcomes. Um, and after that, I went into a postdoc into education, so a completely different <laughs> shift. But I was curious as to how people or youth with mental illness were doing in school. Like, how are they maintaining? Like, it's so hard already with psychosis or even anxiety. And I just wanted to study that. So I started studying that as a postdoc. Um, and then I had my first child and I left research. So everything shifted again. Yeah. Um, and I decided to stay home with uh, my kids. I, I worked the first year. Um, and was trying to balance. I just had this need to want to be home and, and be with them every minute. So I left research and left. I was working at a clinic at that point. Um, and I had launched Curious Neuron, but it didn't look like what it looks today. It was really an in-person kind of thing. Um, after my second child and a burnout during that pregnancy, I said, okay, well, that's that makes sense. I think I need to take a break. And I started the, the blog and I just wanted to blog about the, the science of parenting. I felt that as a parent, everybody was telling me what to do, but nobody was telling me why. Why do I need to do that? Or why do you recommend I do this? So I just wanted to give the why behind everything and share the science around it. So that's what grew into a really big community now of 133,000 on um, Instagram and, you know, a podcast that's doing well. I'm supported by a grant at the Neuro here in Montreal. So it's it's I'm, I'm happy with what it's become. And I'm focusing on the emotions and, and the mental health aspect of parenting and what that looks like for your child and what that looks like for you as a parent. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for sharing all that. It's it's really important work, as you mentioned, and, and much needed. And I think there's there's not a huge understanding around the emotions for, for children, right? And even though we're learning more, there's more research coming, we still don't fully understand and that's the one thing I'm recognizing too, that for it, those early years are so crucial for the development of the brain that we often forget. And one of the things I've recognized also is how attachment impacts children too at such an early age and how that can impact them as adults. And if not properly handled, there's other consequences that children often encounter. So what are some things based on the work and research you've done that you tend to help parents focus on when they're parenting? 
So with regards to my research, I, I didn't look at attachment. I was looking more at emotional right. and emotional regulations. However, I summarize research for parents right now. And I can talk about the little bit that I've seen. And what's interesting yeah. is how our own attachment will come into play when we are starting to parent our child, you know, learning how to discipline and learning how to communicate our emotions with them, learning how to be attuned to them. So that's the kind of research that I've been looking at recently with um, for, the, for the work that I do. Um, and honestly, what's interesting is how like sometimes I, I'll talk about um, spanking or harsh punishment online. And I know that that stirs a lot of people and starts, starts a lot of conversations. But we, we are seeing that that's, that obviously impacts the attachment with the child and also mental, mental health or illness, you know, in the postpartum phase, both mom and dads, moms and dads can have postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. And that does have an impact on the um, attachment style that you build with your child. So I think if there are parents that are listening, what's important to take note of is really understanding what your attachment style was. What was the relationship that you had with your own parents? You know, and and if you did have a parent, including myself, I don't I don't think it's intentional. You know, like I think even with my mom, I think she struggled a lot with mental health, and there was my father left when I was young, and he wasn't involved at all. So it was hard for her to take over all of that. And I get it now as an adult, but as a child, it's like, why don't you see me? Hello, I'm here. And, and I was busy kind of parenting her in a sense and, and trying to be there emotionally for her, um, which changed or impacted our attachment style, which affected me now as an adult as well. I've had to deal with that. And it doesn't matter that we have a degree in something. It's that will be who we are, right? Like I naively became a parent and I was like, I got this. <laughs> That was so wrong. And, and you know, I, my, my kids, you know, by the time my daughter, my firstborn was almost two, I had a second child in the house. And then by the time, you know, in under basically in under four years, I had three kids in the house and mm-hmm. two were in diapers and they were very small. So I think that's for me when everything kind of like surfaced and it was like, wow, I'm a mess and I don't know how to handle them because part of that was my attachment style. Part of that was how I've dealt or never dealt actually with learning how to regulate emotions I knew the science of it but I had never applied these tools before um and as an adult with no kids didn't matter I was fine everything was functioning well but as an adult that had to co-regulate and help children with their own emotions (laughs) I was a mess so I had to learn how to kind of work through that and that includes the attachment style and understanding more about who you are because it will impact how you're parenting your child yeah absolutely and the one thing you touched on there was attunement and that's the word that keeps coming up based on everything I've seen and it's so crucial when uh we're we're dealing with our children right and and if not otherwise they feel neglected and that impacts them as well right so I think the idea of attunement is almost outside attachment but -hmm. it's being able to be present and there's this term that I came across, it's a tennis analogy, but it's like the serve and return between parent and child that keeps uh, coming up. What are your thoughts around that? And and how can parents, besides being aware of their own attachment styles, have that sense of attunement when having, becoming parents and working with their children? Yeah, just a quick note on that attunement. There's a There was a study I was reading and it talked about attunement. And just so that parents have an idea of what we're talking about for that, there, there are different ways of looking at yeah. it. But the, the, this study in particular showed that when the parents had some sort of, um, uh, you know, anxious attachment style or avoidant attachment style, 
they were less attuned to their child's negative emotions. So if a young child was feeling sad or was uh, angry or whatever in that moment, children under the age of four they, in this particular study, then the parent wasn't able to recognize and, and to nurture that emotion in their child as well as somebody who had a secure attachment. So just kind of putting that yeah. out there so that it gives it paints a better picture of what, what we're talking about. Um, for that serve and return, um, they talk. Are you talking about like in the early stages and, and yeah. like when the child coos or makes a sound? Yeah. So I think I think there's I think if you search serve and return Harvard, there's this really beautiful website um, laid out with like videos and 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 um, I think some PDFs where it can help a parent understand the importance of when your child is making little sounds. This newborn in your home is already communicating with you, is already trying to build that attachment with you. Um, and when they do make those sounds and we return them and we have eye contact and we say, hi, how are you? And we come and we touch them and we grab them and hold them. That is communication. And that, you know, sometimes parents will ask me, um, they'll say, like, how do I start developing social emotional skills? Like my child about four or five. I'm like, well, that was as a birth. <laughs> so it starts in those little moments of that child trying to communicate with you in the way that they can. And also seeing, like, are you there for me? Are you coming back? Are you responding to me? Um, and Tina Payne Bryson and Dan Siegel, Siegel have a book called um, The Power of Showing Up. So if somebody wants to really understand the science in a really simple way, they describe the secure attachment. So they say it's called the four S's. If you want to build a secure attachment with your child, you need them to feel seen, soothed and safe. Those yeah. are the three that you want to focus on. And I think for parents who want to apply the science in their home, those three S's make it really simple for you to come back to that. My child's having huge emotional outbursts right now. Are they feeling seen, right? Like it doesn't mean that I can't give a moment of saying, here's the boundary. You're not allowed to hit your brother or your sister. That's fine. That's very important. However, do they feel seen? Are, you know, are you soothing them at some point? Are you helping them with their emotions? Because they still need you. It doesn't matter that your child is three weeks old, three years old. They need you to kind of regulate with them and show them that you're there. It helps their nervous system. Um, and and then do they feel safe in the home? So is there a lot of yelling? Is there, you know, is there neglect? Is there abuse in the home? Even if it's not towards them, seeing it in the home can impact them. So having those three S's in mind is really helpful. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I think the, the whole idea of serve and return doesn't really go away. I think even as children grow older, you want to be able to be present and to your point, maintain those three S's um so the other piece there is when some of that stuff doesn't happen early on there's consequences right and one of the things i've seen is a lot of children struggle with adhd which is one of the primary consequences of not having those secure attachments or attunement early on in life how can parents then manage those situations because based on some of the stuff i've come across it's still you could still build those attachment styles and, and be able to attune to the child, even if they're experiencing ADHD. It's not too late is what I'm trying to get at. Um, is that something you've come across or you can speak to? Um, so I actually haven't seen the studies that link attachment with ADHD. I've seen attachment studies with behavioral issues, many mm -hmm. behavioral issues. So I'm wondering if it's that, that aspect, but I haven't seen specifically ADHD. However, it's not too late if a parent is seeing even behavioral issues or something, yeah. some sort of outcome that they're not, they're not listening to this and saying, is it possible? 
there's always a way, even a child who's experienced an adverse childhood, um, um, as adverse in childhood experience, an ACE in their, in their yeah. childhood, or had some sort of trauma. Dr. Bruce Perry talks about this in his books. It's, it's really, you can kind of reshape, not reshape the brain, but kind of re-nurture it, right? In a way that mm. will help that child. So yes, there are consequences, but creating some sort of connection with an adult. So if, if Sometimes I get emails, really heavy emails from from parents, from moms who are in an abusive environment and they're afraid of what's happening about their, for, you know, about their child. Or they, they ask me, like, you know, what can I do to s- help them in that mm-hmm. moment? Um, and I tell them that it's OK and, and almost encourage if there's a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or somebody in the family that they trust, or even if they're going to daycare and they build a really strong relationship with that caregiver to find somebody that they can feel connection to, that they can feel safe, seen, and soothed. Um, because you will kind of not save the brain, but but nurture it in a way that will be important and helpful and protective for them, for them in their future. Yeah, and I think to build on that, the, what, what I've seen is the brain is still fairly plastic at that mm-hmm. age too, right? Until I think the age of 25, you still have the ability to, to your point, help reshape things through that effort and and what are some of the behavioral issues that you were referring to that could come up and parents can be aware of when when they're seeing that come up yeah so i think before we talk about the behavior we have to understand what emotion regulation skills are because then we'll understand where the behavior comes from so regulating your emotions let's say somebody as an adult somebody says something to you or really upsets you or something happens with your kids you could either you know um you could uh kind of cope with that emotion and have a strategy that you use to not like lose it every single time or you could you know um, lose it every single time and not control it so what's happening is that in the brain we have the amygdala that's communicating with the prefrontal cortex behind our forehead and that part behind our forehead is is the thinking part so it's telling your brain what to do with these emotions in kids it's not developed yet so very often they will have big outbursts we call them tantrums and I, I joke about tantrums because I say if we're going to use that term for kids, we need to use it for adults because we have them too. It's, it's yeah. emotional outbursts. And that outburst or behavior that we're seeing is that externalization of an emotion. Every emotion will always have an internal aspect to it, whether it's what we're thinking, our heart rate increasing, our breathing rate increasing, and something will happen internally. Um, uh, we'll feel an emotion, but then it's it comes out externally as a behavior, even mm-hmm. even as an adult. We might yell, we might we might have aggressive behavior we might say things that we say we later say to somebody i'm sorry i don't know where that came from that's the behavior part it's our tantrum so we have to understand that and that's what's happening for a child they're just having those moments more often because like you said the brain is developing or specifically that prefrontal cortex is developing until the age of 20 25 depending uh girls and guys it it develops a little bit faster in girls Mm -hmm. but all this to say if you have a two-year-old that's having these big emotions and acting out, we often tend to go towards the behavior and discipline that and say, like, how dare you do that? But that child dysregulated, that brain is dysregulated, and they need you to bring them back down. I always picture this sort of mountain in my head. And, and like, at the bottom of the mountain is, like, a green zone, let's say. And the child is fully regulated. You are fully regulated, which means you are focused. You can control your emotions a lot better. Um, you're you're in control basically, but then something can happen in the environment. Um, it, whether again we're an adult or a child, there could be lots of noise for a long period of time. There could be 
some bright lights that that we don't even realize are bugging us. There could be uh, like if you're a parent and your child is climbing up on top of you or you're taking care of a baby and then the toddler is always stuck on your leg. By the end of the day, you might have a big emotional response to that and not even understand it. But you were dysregulated. You were overstimulated. Mm-hmm. And and the same thing happens for a child. So as you're slowly dysregulated, you're climbing up that mountain and you can apply tools. Maybe you can step away from a situation. You can do deep breathing and mindfulness. But once you're at the top of that mountain, again, being a child or an adult, that's it. <laughs> you're fully dysregulated. That's the tantrum that we see in a child who's on the floor, who's yelling. And we're trying to say things like, take a breath. It's okay. And then Mm. parents will email me and say, it doesn't work. It's because that is the absolute wrong time (laughs) to to kind of calm down a child. They need to come down their mountain on their own. And we just need to help them feel seen, safe, and soothed in that moment. And that might mean stepping away and saying, I'm right here. You know, I'll help you when you're done, but you can't hear me right now. And that's okay. But that's it. Not more than that, because they're not going to like start saying, oh, yeah, my mindfulness techniques, like, let me use that. No, it's not. It's too late. Same thing for an adult, right? Like if we're having an argument with a partner and they say something to us or like they they see we're really angry and we're like kind of like going up that mountain, climbing up that mountain and they say, like, calm down. <laughs> yeah. The worst. <laughs> it's yeah, not yeah. going to help. So the same thing for a child. You're disconnected at that moment at the top of the mountain, whether you're an adult or a child, that amygdala, that emotion part of your brain is no longer kind of speaking to the right. thinking part of your brain. So whether you're not adult or a child, you're not really thinking the way that you would think. So it's good to wait for that moment. And that's the big behavioral part that we see all the time in kids. And we right. view tantrums as behavioral issues when in essence, they're, they're emotional regulation issues, right? That we need to help them figure out when to how to recognize that they're slowly going up that mountain. What does it feel like to start getting angry? What does it feel like? to feel shamed or to feel sad and to feel disappointed that my my friend or my sibling isn't giving the toy that I want mm-hmm. what do I start like what are my what are my thoughts in those moments do I do I clench my teeth do I you know get up and start stomping like what do you do what what is what is the child doing and in order to figure that out the parent has to be attuned and has to feel that you know to be able to recognize these things in their child so that they can teach them what it is um, mm-hmm. So that's a long answer to your question. But yeah, that's no, the behavioral like, part. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think the biggest piece there is, uh, I think you pointed out, there's waiting for the child to kind of come down mm-hmm. from that mountain, right? And I think the tendency immediately when you experience that tantrum is to, uh, yourself as a parent, you get activated too. And, yes. and to respond right then and there, rather than perhaps giving the child some space to come down and then trying to deal with it and, and have a conversation about it. So I think that's an important distinction. But often, do you feel like those tantrums themselves are a call to be seen and heard from the child? Because they, they're so, to your point, perhaps don't know how to emotionally regulate that they're seeking that and, and asking for that opportunity for attunement. And, and I think if parents start seeing it that way, you can ha- almost have a different approach rather than getting angry or upset with how the child is behaving yeah well said I I do think some kids are doing that and sometimes parents will email me and say like yeah but my child always wants my attention great then they just told you what they need from you (laughs) right like I I think that that's a great thing and and I do I know I know because I have three of them and I know that we get like triggered sometimes by them 
and right. and these big emotions, especially when we don't understand them, we're just so frustrated. Especially at the end of the day, it's so hard to be able to be calm sometimes. Yeah. And I want parents to know that we we're not perfect and we are human ourselves. And there will be moments where we don't understand it, and we or we have nothing left in our whether you call it cup tank, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. We have nothing left to give because of maybe stresses that we're experiencing, either issues within our, our with with our partner that it's it's just you know trickling down to our parenting, work whatever it is. I know that that happens and that's part of life. But what I do want a parent to think of is to view these tantrums very differently. Like you said, I think when we change our lenses and we see each tantrum as some some form of communication, it sometimes mm-hmm. it's. I, I don't know how to deal with these big emotions. Sometimes it's I'm confused. Sometimes it's I need you. Um, yeah. and, and, you know, when a parent is, when a parent is seeing this, first of all, they're very common and, right. and the, the behavior, the, like the externalization or the behaviors that we see, there's a huge range of them. I'm writing this article for uh, a blog online right now about tantrums and, and like banging their head. It's part of it. 47% in this study that I'm reading of parents said like their child at some point was banging their head. So it's, and this was like two, three, four-year-olds. So it's it's part of it. We might not be seen as aggress- aggression, and we like a child lashing out, hitting, um, spitting, um, throwing toys, scratching us, biting us. We see those as really bad behaviors that need to be disciplined. Um, there needs to be a boundary, but I don't see it the same. A boundary is reminding them we don't do that. Discipline mm-hmm. is teaching. It's not like putting a child in the corner or or giving them harsh consequences, spanking. It's not teaching the child and it's not helping the child understand their own brain and how they're functioning. So every single tantrum, even if it's a child, like you said, that's like trying to get your attention, there's a reason behind it. Have you mm-hmm. been really busy lately? You know, like I want parents to kind of um, zoom out from the situation. We tend to zoom into that child and say, that child's biting. They have a problem. How do I change them? Mm-hmm. But I really encourage parents to step back a little bit and say, what is my child trying to tell me? And then step back a little bit more to bring yourself in that situation and say, how have I been responding to my child? How have I been um, connecting with them or responding to their emotions? Am I responding to their emotional outbursts with my own emotional outbursts? Or am I modeling how to stay calm and, and you know, regulate yourself and, and take deep breaths and, and repairing after we have these moments and having that discussion after? Because that's where the learning happens. And yeah. when you zoom out even more, and the reason why I'm zooming out more is because there's something called the um, tripartite model of parental socialization. And basically it says a child will learn how to regulate their emotions mostly from these three things, how a parent models their emotions, how a parent um, incorporates their parenting style, like which, which parenting style are they applying in their home. And the third one is how a parent is modeling, um, managing and coping with emotions with the person in their home whether that's their partner, a grandparent that's living with them, whoever's in your home, the child is watching you and learning from you in terms of how you argue, in terms of how you repair, in terms of how you speak to each other, the level of aggression or, or, you know, the, the level of tone, the respect, they're going to gain those skills from what's happening in the home. I know that it is hard because I know a lot of parents that reached out to me at one point saying, this pandemic is ruining my marriage and, and it's really bad in the home and my child is there. Um, mm-hmm. Is it okay that I'm fighting in front of my child? And what's hard, especially if things aren't going well, is that you want that child to see it. Fighting and arguing is okay. Arguing is okay. Fighting might be a bit more intense. I don't know. Yeah. But 
it's the repair part after. And I think you brought that up before. That repair of, of that child seeing you have those arguments and then come back. Those are part of social skills. They're part of emotional skills. And they're watching. So um, I don't know if I answered your question. But yeah, it, yeah, it's really important for us to think about how we're modeling that for our kids. Yeah, and absolutely. And I do want to expand on repair because uh, I myself have struggled with that because I think what happens is as parents, you know, we, we're so invested in our children and we care so much. So when we do have situations where perhaps we're not at our best or we may get upset at our child wrongfully or, or, or rightfully, but it's that guilt that comes after the fact. And I think as you've mentioned there, what I've been able to at least work around that guilt is to be able to repair. And, and I think recognizing that if I'm able to model repair for, for my son, then he's learning the skill as well. But it's also recognizing that I'm demonstrating to him that I'm going to make mistakes. We all make mistakes, yeah. but it's coming back and having that repair that is so crucial. And I think there's an aspect of attunement there too, when you're able to repair and take ownership. And I just want, you know, perhaps if you can build on it too, but parents to recognize that there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. It's how you show up and repair. That's important for, for the child to not only, as you said, uh, see modeled for them, but also learn the skill as they grow up and go out into the world yeah. because they'll need these skills as well. These skills are so important. You know, they're important for them in school. So how they're building relationships and friendships with their teachers, their mm -hmm. friends, um, as they start work, how they're going to communicate emotions and repair with colleagues, with bosses, with relationships later on mm -hmm. as they're older. So the skills that you just spoke about are skills that are going to serve them for a lifetime because they need to know that it's not a weakness to have big emotions. It's not um, weak to have strong emotions. It's it's human, right? And and the reason mm -hmm. why I'm saying it this way is because I gave a talk at a local um, elementary school once here in Montreal, and there there was um, I was telling parents that we need to model emotions and that it's okay to re repair and to say sorry and to say I you know sometimes I I scream or I lash out and I I'm, I'm sorry I'm working on that you know so I was talking about that and the father raised his hand and said I don't particularly agree with you I'm supposed to be the authoritative figure in this child's life. Mm -hmm. Why would I highlight a weakness? Why would I do that in front of my child? And he was, that was his response to saying like, sorry. And, and saying like, I, you know, sometimes I yell or I get angry very easily. Right. And I said, no, no, that doesn't make you weak. You being angry doesn't make you weak. You being sad doesn't make you weak. It makes you human. And, and your child needs to see you human. Yes, we are superheroes in their mind. But if we can show them that like we apologize because we have moments where we yeah. lose control, when they lose control, they'll feel normal. They'll feel, they'll still feel that it's it's part of who we are and that they are not weak for having those moments. So I think we need to have that discussion a lot more in our society because there are moms and dads that just feel that you can't apologize. And when it comes to emotions, we apologize so often. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have so many big emotions, you know, like again, having three small kids in the house, there's moments where you lash out and you're like, oh crap, why did I do that? You know, like, and, and then you come back and you go see them. You're like, I'm really sorry. I had this on my mind and you guys weren't putting your toys away. And then I ended up saying that or I did that. And I'm, I'm really, really sorry. Let's put your toys away together. And boom, now you're creating that attachment. You're showing them that it's okay to have emotions and you're saying, I'm sorry. And you know what? There's an example. My three-year-old the other day, he, he walked away from his five-year-old brother who wasn't sharing a toy. 
But his five-year-old brother was being very um, communicated. He was saying, I just want it for two more minutes. But the three-year-old doesn't understand that yet. Yeah. So he, he said, like, fine. And he threw the toy he had. And he marched up in his room. And I, to me, that wasn't, he, that was a good way of handling it. He walked away. I'm happy with that. But what was nice is that I went to see him and I said, you know, you, you really yelled loudly at your brother. And he was trying to explain to you that he just wanted it for two more minutes. I know I could see, and, and this is the kind of how I'm building detachment with him and validating his emotions. I see that you were really angry because you must have wanted to play with that toy right away. I know you love, I don't know what it was, Buzz from, from Toy Story, whatever it was. I know you love Buzz and, and you wanted it right away, but your brother just wanted it for two more minutes. I'll let you, I'll leave you here. And when you feel calm, you can come back down whenever you want. Here's a book. I gave him a book and I went downstairs. I gave him space. He stayed mm -hmm. up for maybe four minutes, let's say. And he came down and just continued playing as if everything was normal. And then out of nowhere, and I wasn't even playing with them. I was cooking uh, dinner. He said to his brother, uh, in his own words, obviously, he said, I'm sorry uh, that I yelled at you, but you made me mad. And I was like, huh, <laughs> it worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it worked. <laughs> that was so amazing. I came downstairs. I blogged about it. <laughs> but it was so nice to see that. So he's three and a half. He's going to be four at the end of the summer. But it's possible. I want parents yeah. to know that it's possible if you do this consistently in your home and they see that with your partner, they see you doing that with them, with their siblings, they will learn those skills. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's an aspect of uh, we tend to protect our children. And I think there's Sometimes you can take it too far because yeah. you also want your child to learn from these experiences and build resilience. And that's another thing I wanted to focus on with you yeah. today was the aspect of resilience when it comes to helping our children and, and how resilience can help them cope with stressful situations when they're older. Right. And I feel like that's helped me often too, as, as an adult, having that sense of resilience that I probably built early on in life, but to deal with stressful situations that come up. And if we haven't built those skills early on, we would struggle as adults, right? And that's something I wanted to also highlight. Yeah, I, I like that you bring that up because I think we have a bit of a misunderstanding around that and what a child needs to go through. So we we tell we keep saying this is the term I hear the most, like I want my child to be resilient. And then but then we're kind of cocooning as much as we can. Yeah. And we're saying, like, don't experience life. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and it's hard. And, but then there's the other extreme as well. I met a parent. Um, there was this, it was a dad, actually. And he said to me, you know, my daughter, she, she needs to be bullied a little bit because, like, she's just not going to learn what life is. Maybe that's a little bit more in the extreme. However, um, to the, the opposite end of that, I, I was about to register my kids, my, my um, youngest and middle sons for soccer this year. And I found out, I don't know if it's the same in Montreal, but for me in Laval, they took away games. And I need to bring this up. They took yeah. away games from kids because they don't want them to lose and get upset. Yeah. What? So when I heard, I, I didn't register. <laughs> I was yeah. mad. What, what are we doing as a society? Because my three, four, five-year-old, whatever, young kids, they need to experience losing because then it's my job as a parent. That's the resilience, right? Yeah. Like to say like, it's not fun losing, but mm -hmm. here's, here's, you know, like, let's go practice that kick that you missed a couple of times, or let's go practice at home tomorrow. You know, we can uh, go to the park and, and, and I don't know, you can be the goalie if you're the, whatever it is, that's part of emotion regulation skills. There are adaptive strategies like, 
I'm reassessing, reappraising the situation, problem solving through a situation or acceptance. Those three emotion regulation strategies are adaptive, meaning that they're healthy and they help us cope with everyday situations, which builds our resilience. The opposite of that is our maladaptive strategies. Mm -hmm. And that includes like avoidance or suppression or rumination. And if we don't give children opportunities to um, play around with those two strategies, right? Because I, I, I do see sometimes in some of my kids, like they'll kind of suppress emotions. And I always, I always tell them about like the importance of like talking to me about it or talking to yeah. somebody or drawing it, getting it out of your system and, and just not avoiding it or suppressing their emotions. And, and rumination is another important one. There's so much research around rumination. And if we're seeing it very young, that you know, we're, there's a higher chance of anxiety later on. We don't want our kids to, you know, um, lose and then not have emotions around it. We want them to have emotions and we want to have that opportunity to speak to them. So whether it's losing a soccer game, uh, whatever game it is, or going to the park and trying to make friends with a kid they see and that kid's ignoring them. Whatever it is, I'm, I'm using really small examples, yeah. but those are opportunities that are child appropriate and that child will come to you and say like, I'm so sad. I saw that kid playing in the sandbox and I was like, hey, you want to be my friend? And they were like ignoring me. And you say, oh, that hurts. Eh? Like that, that wasn't fun. I could see that you're really upset about it. What can we have done differently? Can we have just sat beside them and smiled? Or, or you know, on the walk home as they're they're talking to you about this, just like letting them express their emotions or even like a loss of a pet. Parents will often ask me this where they say like, I have, I, I, I mean, I spoke to them about it, but then I never brought it up again because I, I don't want to like stir those emotions. And I see it differently. I, I don't know if you do, but I, I see it in a way where you want to bring it up because you want to find out where they're thinking. And that's where a bit of that, like working on emotions and learning how to cope with emotions or work through sadness that's how you'll teach them these skills. And that's right. where the resilience comes from. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I think you, you almost want to have those conversations because the other piece, obviously, children don't have the language. I mean, most adults don't either to have the language <laughs> yes. to speak to their emotions. But by having those conversations, you're teaching them those skills as well, where you're able to perhaps help them label the emotions. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's crucial because, you know, I see my son sometimes struggling and he just shuts down. He's quiet. And for me, it's important to help him work through it, not push too hard, yeah. give him his space. But then when he's ready to talk about it, it's being able to help him come up with the language and label the emotions that he's experiencing. Otherwise, you know, it's very similar to adults where you kind of use the, the, the common terms. I'm angry. I'm sad. But there's deeper emotions there right that we want to be able to understand and and help our children also be able to speak to and and i i think that's crucial yeah yeah that vocabulary is such an important piece right like i feel i felt shamed at school i felt embarrassed i felt um even with young kids with my kids by the time they were about two years old i was introducing i'm disappointed or frustrated in, mm -hmm. in the vocabulary because you're not always angry or sad you can be a little bit of a mix you know like and and, and that's okay too um yeah. but the vocabulary is, is part of it. There's Mark, Mark Brackett has a book called Permission to Feel. And that gives you, you were talking about like how many emotions. He, he paints like a picture of 64 emotions. So, you know, I encourage parents to kind of look at that or even if you're not a parent to just kind of kind of spread that vocabulary open a little bit more, you know, in terms of like what's, what you're feeling. Because then you'll realize like internally or behaviorally or, you know, externally, you might not react the same way to feeling um 
I don't know, uh, sad versus embarrassed, right? Like it's very different. And we want mm -hmm. kids to have those words to use. But also with very young kids, we forget that excitement is is part of an emotion. And yeah, we usually yeah. see like, oh, my kid's so like super hyperactive and they have so much energy, but it's excitement. And that also needs to be regulated. We have to remember that, especially with young kids. Sometimes we'll look at it again as a behavioral thing, like they're jumping on the walls, they're running around, they're not sitting down, sit down and focus. But they're so young and that's yeah. their energy right now. And Mark Brackett paint um, his his sort of visual of emotions. It's in a chart and it's um, the level of energy and the level of pleasantness. So high energy emotions um, and high pleasantness, that's your excitement. That's your like happiness and joyfulness. But you can also be happy with low energy. You can be calm and peaceful, right? So it, it just really helps us kind of um, put words to how we're feeling and, and understand how not only are we feeling, but how we can talk to our kids about that. Um, so I think that's a good place to start. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And uh, and even, you know, with kids being excited, I mean, that's to your point, that's what kids are meant to do. They're supposed to be <laughs> yeah. running around and expending that energy and uh, you know, that's kind of my struggle with sometimes with school too, where kids are expected to sit still, but that's not their nature, right? They're, they have all this energy that needs to be expended. Um, but yeah, that's something we'll have to figure out, I guess. But uh, that, I know. Yeah. It's hard. The other piece I did want to touch on was as parents, quite often a child's response to something, or as we've talked about their, their behaviors can trigger something in us as mm -hmm. adults, something that we perhaps struggle with ourselves, or there's something about us that we don't like that we see in our child and that could trigger us. And we may project that onto our children. So, you know, I, just to kind of come back full circle, how mm -hmm. can we as parents be aware of our own triggers and not, you know, like I said, project it onto our children and, and just take ownership for that? And often if we do, then we've talked about the repair side of things, but also put that mirror to ourselves and be yeah. more aware of what are those things that are coming up. Yeah. And I love that you bring that up because I think that if you are struggling with your child's behavior or their emotions, it comes, it starts with us <laughs> and yeah. it always does. And I know that that's hard. Like you said, holding that mirror there and, and saying like, and that's why I talked about zooming out because we ha we are part of this equation. So, mm -hmm. you know, the work that you need to do, it it's not going to be easy work. And I'm still, it's an everyday thing for me. And it's an everyday thought process and an everyday battle sometimes for certain things. Again, I was raised in an environment where I never saw love between two parents. I never mm -hmm. saw, um, I, I, I often had to support my parents and my mom's emotions. So that led to my own issues and I have to work through that. And yes, that led to an attachment that is not secure. And that led to me, you know, questioning certain things with my kids. Like, am I not good enough? It, 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 do they hate me? And, and I had to work through those thoughts. So our inner dialogue is yeah. extremely important. There's an, um, a researcher, Chris, uh, Ethan Cross, sorry. Ethan Cross does research on like our inner voice. And he has a book called Chatter. And it gives you like 25 yeah. ways to kind of change that inner dialogue to a more positive one. And one of them is just changing instead of saying uh, I or you say, is it? Yeah, you say your name, I think. So you just basically it's as if you're talking to a friend. And that's a good start because I think many of us have to kind of work on our inner dialogue. And your inner dialogue is often the voice that you heard growing up. Right. And and again, right. not my mom's fault. Uh, it's it's just the situation that she was given. Yeah. And 
I worked through those kind of emotions around that. But now I know that I have to work on that. And I keep hearing that the, ne- the negative one saying, you're not enough. You're, you're going to fail. You're going to make a mistake. And you're going to. So it's hard because as a parent, we might be saying that when our kids are having big emotions, we might see it as a failure, you know, and, and it's hard to work through that. So like you said, turning the mirror around and saying, like, what do I need to work on? What do my emotion skills look like? You know, do I internalize? Do I talk about my emotions? Am I suppressing? Am I ruminating and losing sleep because I'm always thinking through obsessively about what happened that day and yeah. what I could have changed and the conversation I had with somebody? What am I doing? And can I switch that over to reappraisal a little bit more? Can I, what can I work on? Can I problem solve through things? Do I feel like it's always about me and everybody's mad at me and it's, you know, I'm the victim of the world. Like, what, but it's hard because you need insight, right? Like, right. It, it's so hard to do. So if a parent can see a therapist or is not comfortable with it, I, I think there are books. Um, there's a book called Emotional Intelligence. And, and that's, you know, uh, Goldman, I think his name yeah, is. Daniel Goldman. Goldman. Yeah, Daniel Goldman. Daniel, that's it. Um, there's that one. There's um, Strange Situations, which is a book about attachment. So there, there are lots of ways I think that we can read um, I know a father who had experienced childhood trauma and he just started reading and reading and reading. His wife kept like showing him certain books like uh, Justin Baldoni's book, Man Enough. And yep. she was like, you know, here are some books that you can read because he was becoming extremely aggressive and never really spoke about his childhood trauma. And then by reading, he's like, oh, yeah, that's me. Oh, I do do that. OK, like, you know, but you have to have an open heart and an open mind to wanting to change. And the more we can work on ourselves the more we'll change the situation with our kids, we'll change our relationship with them. It'll be a stronger relationship with them. It will be more attached. The healthier it'll be, the better it'll be for their mental health, their emotional health. You know, it's, there's a lot that can change there, but we have to be ready for the work. And sometimes we're not, um, and we have to be open to it. And, you know, journaling sometimes, like even for myself, I've spoken about this um, I just wrote like one sentence a day about like what I was grateful for. And I started that in January and I was, I was like, I'm, I'm a grateful, I'm a positive ish kind of person. Like I, this is ridiculous, but I'm going to do it. Let's just see what happens. Yeah. And then by like week two and a half, I noticed that I was a little bit happier in the house and that things are getting a little bit easier. And what I was writing in my journal was um, like at the beginning when I started it, I was writing things like had a great meeting with this company or whatever. Oh, had a successful day for I have an app, um, Wondergrade. Oh, we, you know, we met with this person. Oh, we had this many downloads. Everything was like business work-wise. Mm-hmm. And then by the second week, you saw a shift. You saw because I had nothing else to write about. <laughs> you don't have a meeting every day, a good meeting. You don't have a good, you know, a successful day for work every day. And I was looking for things. And then I started seeing things like. Um, my child uh, gave me a really big hug, a hug and said, I love you like at bedtime. Or um, I gave water to my kids in the middle of the night and one just like hugged me. And I was like, oh, that's so sweet. Like, Not that I didn't notice them before, but I started writing it. And because of those moments, days felt a little bit easier for some reason. So yeah. again, there's just so many ways that we can start the work. There's self-compassion. Kristen Neff has a book about self-compassion and talks about that. And it doesn't matter if you're a mom or a dad. I think we all need to work on our self-compassion. And research shows the more you work on your self-compassion, the more compassionate you are with others around you, including your kids. Um, So there are many different angles that we can take. But we first have to ask ourselves, where should we start the work? What what do we struggle with the most? Um, And it makes a huge difference. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And thank you for sharing all that. And thank you for coming on. But before we bring it to an end, is there anything else you feel that we 
probably haven't covered, but is relevant for this discussion of parenting or, or supporting our children in, in their emotional regulation journey? Um, I think we covered a lot. It was really good. I, I, you know, I want parents to kind of picture this like green, yellow, red meter in their minds. You know, I, I'm, I'm 40. I grew up in the, the age of like Mortal Kombat and all that kind of stuff. So I, I always picture that like lifeline at the top. And then, you know, like you get a couple of kicks and you go from green to yellow and then yellow to red and then it's flashing and you're done. I want parents to visualize this because and throughout the day, waking up is not a brand new day for your brain and its emotions and mental health. It's not. It's and, and I think we look at it that way, like tomorrow will be better. But then we wake up and we're still sad or we're still anxious or we're, we're still dysregulated and we don't understand why. I want you to question, where are you? How regulated are you? And if you are often in the yellow zone, it's possible there's something from your childhood that leads to you feeling dysregulated most of the time and your system mm -hmm. is off. That's a sign that you might need help um, and support to, to work through that. But if you're in the yellow zone, are there ways that you can bring yourself to the green zone? Is a coffee something that's important to you? Can you wake up 20 minutes earlier to have that coffee? That's your time. Can you go for a walk to start your day? Can you write a, one sentence in a journal or read a book? Something that's important to you. Exercise, whatever it is. Um, but to regulate yourself and ask yourself this question throughout the day. Lunchtime, afternoon, bedtime. How regulated am I? Because if you're going into bedtime and you're in the red zone, you will lose it. You are already dysregulated. And you're, anything will tip you off and go into that red flashing zone and you're done. Ask yourself how you're feeling and, and try to find ways to bring yourself back to the green zone or yellow zone as much as you can. Yeah, yeah. No, that's amazing. Um, thank you again. Thank you. I really appreciate you coming on here and, and sharing your wisdom and insight with us. Um, for listeners that do want to get a hold of you or find some of the work you're doing, uh, I know you've mentioned Instagram and, and your app, but what are some ways they can find you? So we have blog posts at curiousneuron.com. There's the Curious Neuron podcast, which has a new episode every week. Um, Instagram is curious underscore neuron. And if you do have a child who's between the ages of three to eight, who's struggling to regulate their emotions, the Wonder Grade app helps children with that through like a really lovable little character and activities and mindfulness and meditation apps for bedtime. Uh, and that's available on Apple and Android as well. And you can follow Wondergrade at Wondergrade uh, on Instagram or Wondergrade.com. Perfect. Yeah, I'll put all of that in the show notes. But yeah, thank you again. It was thank a you so much. pleasure having you on. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for checking this episode out with Dr. Hovington. As always, please leave a review or a comments in the comment section. I always love hearing from you. Or subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so. That's the best and quickest way to support the podcast. Thank you and until next week.